interestingly, is made by the placenta to tune the mother's brain. It's a neurosteroid. The neurosteroid mm. is usually a hormone made by the brain for the brain, but the placenta is making this hormone for the mother's brain to tune her. Wow. Um, yeah, very profound. And again, you know, this research is just starting to re really kind of blossom. And, and one of the things I've just you know, I've only realized earlier this year is how the placenta tunes the mother. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional caretakers and inhabitants of this land across Australia. Also locally where I stand, the Beerpai people who continue their cultural practices, wisdom and law. Thanks for tuning in to the Pollination Mamas podcast where we have collaborative conversations cross-pollinating as we span our wings, connecting the threads of ancestral wisdom in a modern context so that we can live a nurtured life. I believe ancestral wisdom provides a roadmap to a regenerative culture, contributing to thriving communities, healing and health. Hi everyone, welcome to another Pollination Mamas podcast. I've had a little break. I've been very busy with mamas and bubbers and fires, as many of you know. It settled a little bit here. The smoke has cleared a bit today, thank goodness. And I've also got a guest here who's been living in another area with fires. Um, and some of you have, most of you have probably heard of him. But my first male guest, I'm up to episode 20 something. <laughs> That's pretty special. And if you're going to have your first male guest when you're talking about postpartum wellness, you're going to have Dr. Oscar Saralak. I should have checked the pronunciation actually. Hopefully I got that right. That's good. <laughs> so Dr. Oscar is a well-known author of the groundbreaking book, Postnatal Depletion Cure, and founder of the Mother Care Project. Oscar is also an integrative GP and owner at his integrative medical centre based in the Northern Rivers, New South Wales. It's been throughout Oscar's work in his practice that he first started to become aware of a pattern of postpartum depletion in his patients. Also, he had this experience personally within his own family and with his wife um, noticing certain patterns. So I really love that, that it's both in your practice and in your personal life. Oscar wanted to provide a reference of support for mothers beyond the clinic and therefore the book, The Postpartum Depletion Cure, was born. So thank you for being here and thank you for being that professional who provided recognition of a much needed area of health in a time when mamas were really starting to say, hey, this is not okay, we're not okay, I'm not okay and things need to change. And so it's all good to have all the mamas um, behind each other and women but then to have a professional there in the picture especially a male I know it shouldn't always be about gender but you know we are talking about gendered issues here so thank you well thank you Shelley and thanks for the introduction um, yeah and it took me a long time to actually be comfortable with the fact that being a male I was talking about uh, postnatal care which you know, we've obviously seen much more in the domain for female health practitioners, but I, no, I think it's actually very appropriate. I mean, my joke has been that I've, I felt like a reporter in a war zone in terms of, you know, I wasn't experiencing the postnatal depletion, but I was seeing it all around me, and it was just an unspoken uh, truth uh, that is besieging our society in the 21st century in terms of mothers being super exhausted, uh, having, you know, a number of, 
different sort of psychological challenges and really sort of suffering through a time that should be and could be uh, very enjoyable and, and, and also just probably the most profound transformation experience that a, that a person can have really, which is through the pregnancy and the birth of a child and then those sort of first few years. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a very important topic and really looking forward to today's discussion. Yeah, I agree. I think it's really important to have, well, we need everyone on board, but especially um, the dads, men, brothers, uncles, as well as the aunties, grandmas, all of that, mothers. Um, and we need more health professionals. So I think you feel a really important niche as it comes through in your book. So I'd love for you to open up and share your passion, obviously for mother care that's already coming through, mother-centred care, and your vision for reframing how matrescent, which we can kind of um, explain a little bit more for people who haven't heard that word, is understood in health practice particularly. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, after I wrote my book, I sort of went overseas and, and toured sort of promoting the book and I kind of realised that the word postnatal and postpartum had been quite tainted, um, especially in America. Uh, the word postpartum essentially means depression in a lot of circles. That you know, Someone would say, oh, look, I know someone who had postpartum and I'd be waiting for them to finish their sentence and, and they're almost, you know, it's almost like, it's this kind of lottery of unluckiness that it, you know, to get struck down by having depression or anxiety in the postpartum period. And so, um, you know, I really like the word matrescence, which had come out of uh, you know, work in anthropology and then in sort of mental health, describing the transition and transformation into motherhood. And you know, the original title of my book uh, was Mothermorphosis which was the idea of you know, the caterpillar coming into the butterfly and essentially what is, I think, biologically planned to happen um, during that transition into motherhood. So matrescence, um, like adolescence, is a transformation that doesn't just occur at one point in time. Now, during adolescence, you don't become an adult at your 18th birthday. It's a psychological birth of the adult, and just at, at childbirth, you know, you don't become a mother at childbirth, but it is a psychological birth of a mother. But it is a transition that um, takes some time to fully occur. Uh, you know, there are not many people realize that the brain changes during a pregnancy are actually more profound than the brain changes that occur in the entire adolescence. Um, but, and we know that an adolescent takes a while to get used to the new brain and the new hormonal system and we support them in that. You don't leave an adolescent to kind of work it all out or you should know how to be an adult. Same as with, with matrescence, um, that is a maiden becoming a mother, we should support her in her journey and not just leave her to her own devices and then judge her for, oh, you know, you, you, you don't know how to be a mother, it, it's uh, shame on you. And so, you know, something I like about your work, Shelley, is, is how you're really uh, promoting this idea of the village to raise a mother, not, not you know, kind of the idea that it, it's a village to raise a child. Sure, we know that, but it, it, the village also needs to really support the mother. And what, no, I can't, but I mean, part of the reason why I'm so passionate is you can't 
possibly have a more important job or role in the world to raise a child and to essentially teach them how to love you know and that only a mother can do you know, as a dad i can teach my children about aspects of love and the complexities of love but that actual initial um interaction is 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 purely through the mother and so that, that's a very very important job and so hence my uh passion uh it seems very obvious to me it's not very obvious to a lot of people in the medical world um and so i think this matrix is a really beautiful non-tainted uh term to sort of gather around and it really describes what's going on and another idea that i'm really pushing is around we should have mothers in their own medical group you know we have pediatrics for kids we have geriatrics for older people i mean how about having something like matriatrics um, for mothers because they are not maidens and they're certainly not men and the research is showing they don't seem to return back to being maidens in terms of their physiology and these brain changes um, and so this upgraded uh, being called a mother we have to understand uh, more about her physiology and, and how to support her and I think part of that would make sense if we had terminology that helped us to think in those kind of ways rather than mothers trying to get back to their maiden bodies and back to their maiden lifestyles it's equivalent to an adult trying to go back to their child body or their child way of doing things and, and, and sure as an adult we have to nurture our inner child and a mother has to nurture her inner maiden but if you don't seriously try to go back um, especially once you've been through that transformation and as a culture and society we have talked that way and we almost push mothers to try to go back to being maidens in so many ways and I think that we all lose when that sort of happens and so this is part of my work and your work is to at least help with the reframing and then from there we can kind of have the individuality uh, if we can understand the framework of what's what's going on mm, wonderful yeah it's important work and you're right we are sort of anyone working in the postnatal postpartum matrescence areas trying to recreate this culture of care and understanding of what that transition is and what's needed for that to be optimum for everyone mother child and then that ripples out like you said into our communities and you mentioned in your book, and I talk about a lot, and a lot of people were looking to the traditional wisdom to understand, not that long ago, and for many cultures, how that's still really um, current. It's a really strong understanding that mothers need really, really strong and close care. And there's certain aspects to that that are needed. So sort of we're recreating, but we've got a modern context now, which is yeah. exciting. There's pros and cons to that. And Having, I mean, I went to a GP when I, after my third, so I've got two girls, my first passed at birth. And so I'd had three in five years and I've been very blessed to have two more. So, but my, my last one, I was so depleted. So where did I go? I went to the GP. I went to a naturopath as well. I read your book. I tried to advocate for myself. And at the GPs, even though I was seeing a woman and a mother, she was like, well, that's just what it's like when you've got a baby. That's just normal. And I was like, hmm, you don't know who you're talking to here, but I thought so. 
<laughs> so many mothers would go. And even in my tired state, I was like, oh, I can't even bother advocating for myself. So off I went to the, the naturopath. But um, we've got the modern context now where we really, that's where women will be going. They'll be going to their GPs and their health professionals and contacts. So they need to really be savvy on this in the modern context to be able to guide women. Yeah. yeah. They, they do, and I think that part of the issue is the framework of the, what's considered postnatal um, because the GP had been trained to think postnatal equals six months post the birth of a baby for psychological issues and six weeks post the birth of a baby for physical issues. Otherwise, you know, you're pretty much getting lumped in with other adults and men in terms of your of a mother's sort of issues. And, and part of what you're alluding to is the normalization of postpartum fatigue, of baby brain, of overwhelm. And you know, for me, whilst they're common, you know, they're not normal in terms of what uh, I think uh, you know, nature has intended. You know, they're an inflamed version of what can happen when things aren't supported and then allowed to sort of recalibrate and recorrect. And I think part of the solution for me is. Yes, health professionals, you know, mother care workers, I call them, a community from GPs to psychologists to physios, um, naturopaths, etc., um, to understand the framework a little bit better and at least have some resources around that. But I think also, for me, the solution lies more in older mothers supporting younger mothers with uh, deep support and non-judgmental um, you know, presence, if you like. And ideally, we don't wait for a mother to become depleted, exhausted, depressed before we're providing her with um, you know, more than just sort of superficial support. And so, you know, yes, I'm very well versed in helping mothers who are uh, in quite a bad place and, and extreme they're suffering and they've got extreme fatigue and what have you, but ideally my work would be much more around preventing that kind from happening. Um, and we don't even have a framework around that. I mean, it, it, what's, what's amazing for me is uh, this view that the birth is the finish line uh, rather than I, <laughs> what I joke with my mothers, it's actually the start line um, and, and the pregnancy is just a, you know, um, a type of warm-up, if you like, into, into parenthood. And you're, you know, I see lots of my clients now that have got great you know, uh, birth plans, they've got had great antenatal care, and no one's got a postnatal plan. And so what I say is, like, yeah, you've got your birth plan, great, great, put that aside, and let's talk, you know, and let's get a great postnatal plan, um, and let's make sure that the mother is not the one having to initiate it and to make sure that it's happening um, because that will just add to her stress and distress. Uh, and, it, and it's great to really empower the dads and the other caregivers to implement the plan. And it's not necessarily about them being really busy cooking and cleaning and those kind of things. And if they can stay in the baby bubble for that first six weeks, that's fantastic. Um, and then... Uh, empowering them to do the food rosters and getting people cleaning and um, you know, providing what is 
needed and what has been decided in, in their sort of postnatal sort of plan. And, and it's a really beautiful thing when it happens. Um, and I'm seeing more and more amazing stories of, of mothers who have really struggled with their first you know, third pregnancy or their first you know, or second birth. And then with their subsequent pregnancy and births, you know, being aware of the idea of a postnatal plan and then initiating and then having a very different experience and sometimes a very healing experience. Uh, I had a client here just this last week. Um, I think from memory, she's nine weeks postpartum, and she had a, a very healing and is having a very different experience now in terms of how she's feeling emotionally, physically, how her community just sort of turned up to sort of support her, um, you know, rather than the more car crash-like experiences that she had with her first, I think, two children. Um, and so with your fourth child, uh, <laughs> if we had that ancient wisdom there, you would have had a lot more support sort of turning up un, uh, without having to put your hand up to ask for that help. Um, because you know, with your fourth child, you know, the stakes are higher. You don't have the spaces to kind of relax and uh, have that deep rest and focus on sleep and all these kind of things that are sort of really important. And, and you know, I, I came to this pl uh, world of understanding ancient cultures not out of a particular interest. Uh, it was almost out of frustration that, you know, with my... Um, with my third child, I was just seeing how depleted and distressed my partner was getting. I was seeing this pattern occurring everywhere, and I just went to the textbooks. And to my dismay, no textbooks, very few articles. Um, and I was thinking, I'm just putting the wrong search words in, I'm looking at the wrong journals, I'm kind of, there's something I'm missing here. And all my <laughs> um, efforts keep pointing me back to these things called postpartum practices. And, and at first it was a little bit annoying going, oh my God, I'm getting, you know, this stuff, you know, hundreds of, or if not thousands of years old. And I want something really recent. And, um, but I was like, okay, well, let, let's see what, you know, the you know, traditional Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine. And within those descriptions, I was seeing postnatal depletion. They weren't using the word depletion. They were using a different uh, you know, set of words, but they very eloquently described what you needed to do to prevent this from happening. And so for me, that was kind of my aha moment going, okay, this is not a new phenomenon. This you know, has The potential for this to happen has always been there, but it's becoming more frequent. And unfortunately, like with your experience with your GP, it's been normalized. Um, and you know, what a horrible thing, really, something that our, our ancients and um, you know, generations before us tried everything to avoid, um, we're normalising and just going, oh, you're meant to be tired, you know, baby brain, ha, ha, ha. Um, you know, mum's feeling anxious and it's just like, this is part of motherhood. And it's like, mm, yeah, this is really a dangerous place to sort of go when when we're doing this because it's not normal, it's very common and we need we need to be doing everything as a collective to avoid mothers getting into that deep place of overwhelm, self-doubt, um, tired, wide, fatigue, 
because everyone loses, including the mum, including the children, including partnerships, including kind of their inner communities when you have these mothers who are just on the edge and floundering and not knowing where to turn and then thinking it's their fault for not being a super mum or not. I mean, and it's, it's, it's tragic. And so I don't want to be picking up the pieces. Uh, very happy to do that, but it's not kind of where I'm really uh, wanting to put a lot of my energy and efforts. And something that we sort of talked about uh, before going live was this, uh, the, the Mother Care Project. And so I might just talk about that briefly. So you know, the Mother Care Project is, um, uh, is a collective that I'm slowly starting and I'll be sort of resourcing more and more, you know, especially um, uh, 2020 is going to be a great year for me to get a lot more energy into this project. Uh, it's a little bit difficult, sort of, and I'm working sort of uh, five days a week in clinic, uh, but I'm just, I'll, I'll be opening up space to uh, for, the, for this collective. And it's around, you know, I've met so many incredible people like yourself who are super passionate, who are doing great work in your communities and who maybe not that connected or aware of what other people are doing. And so the Mother Care Project is around helping connect mother care workers, providing information and inspiration uh, and a platform, if you like, to, um, to share and learn. And then for mothers and uh, family members to also be able to connect into that, to, to be able to uh, you know, get knowledge, articles, understanding, help with things like postnatal planning. Um, and if they want to dig into the science, it's all going to be there because you know, the mother care workers uh, are needing the science to help the collective voice because they're, they're I mean, and something that's been amazing for me, and I started researching this very deeply, uh, probably been for about just over 10 years, but very seriously the last seven years. And then what's come out in the last two years in terms of research is profound and mind-boggling in terms of just going, wow, we're really starting to get some traction around these ideas of um, mothers not being made and some of these brain changes, hormonal changes, upgrades that a mother sort of gets. And also, uh, I suppose, this idea of, neuroinflammation being a unique uh, postpartum experience that some mothers can have that then leads to depression, that leads to disability issues, it leads to anxiety, and then also can lead to uh, postnatal depression. And in my book, I was a little bit too scared to name uh, postnatal depletion as a neuroinflammatory disorder, but I'm very happy and confident to do that now. Uh, and in a nutshell, neuroinflammation is where there is a specific area of the brain that has too many inflammatory molecules, um, and the body is finding it hard to recalibrate back to its kind of set point. Um, and sometimes it can just be in a tiny, tiny part of the brain, but it can be like a spinning wheel. And so it doesn't take much 
from the environment to cause that spinning wheel to have quite profound effects in the body, especially if that spinning wheel happens to be, and it usually is somewhere in the hypothalamus, which is the hormonal uh, response center of the brain. So the hypothalamus pretty much dictates all our hormones. It also dictates you know, a huge part of our immune system. Um, and if that part of the brain is sensing things are not right out there or is already in a preemptive state of overreaction, um, it's not going to take much, you know, poor night's sleep, a you know, very judgmental comment on social media, uh, one triggering inflammatory food to kind of then cause a cascade of things. And, and, and a, lot, a lot of what my mother's really struggled with is that the mathematics of motherhood are not the same as the mathematics of being a maiden. That I could have some, you know, a few nights bad sleep, I could eat you know, some inflammatory foods that I knew that weren't great for me, but you know, I'd be okay. And in this new landscape, it, it can be devastating to, to how to, this just doesn't make sense anymore. Exercise doesn't make sense to me anymore. Sleep doesn't make sense to me anymore. Food doesn't make sense to me anymore. The, the world of, I can't even put the news on anymore because that, you know, um, that stuff strikes so deeply that I, I'm, I'm just confused. Whereas before I could watch the news and I'd, I'd, I'd be fine. Um, I'm crying at commercials. You know, what, what the hell is going on here? Um, and this is the world, unfortunately, of, of neuroinflammation, this exaggerated response to um, things and, and stimuli that would have had quite a different response before. So if we can understand that as a collective, then we can go, okay, well, these there are downstream things you can do to help support neuroinflammation, but you can literally switch off neuroinflammation. Right. Wow. That's that's exciting. It's good to have some positives there. Well, it, it is, but it also needs a different set of tools because mm. um, because postnatal depression, for example, is not the same as depression in um, a maiden. It's not the same as depression in a man. It's a very different um, thing that's going on when you look into biochemistry and the electricity of the brain. So you know, we should be calling it something like postnatal neuroinflammatory disorder with depressive symptoms. You know, it's not a very kind of sexy term or something that can be easy to remember, but it's basically to allude to the fact that this is not depression. It yeah. has depression as part of what's going on, but it's not depression. I really love that. I love that, yeah. And talking about the inflammation and the depletion side of it, it's really hopeful, actually. It sounds, like I said, it sounds long-winded and doesn't sound very exciting. But when you go, oh, inflammation, I can, I can change inflammation. I can replete, I can do repletion with depletion. And then all of a sudden the depression symptoms or aspects in there become a little bit more manageable. I really love yeah. that reframing. Well, and, and one of the things that I think beautifully illustrates this is you know, the first ever approved drug for postpartum depression came out earlier this year in America. Um, so we'll, as a GP or anyone, who's, and we're using medications off-label when we're treating postpartum depression, which is an interesting reflection just in itself. Um, and this drug um, is actually a placental hormone 
that is found in large amounts in the third trimester. It's called allopregnenolone. What the uh, pharmaceutical world has done is tweaked it into an artificial molecule so they can patent it. Um, and then they give it as an infusion over 60 hours. It's very expensive. It costs about $34,000 US at the moment. You can, you can imagine that the pharmaceutical industry is going to do stupid things that it does and try to get this you know, uh, medication to any mother who's having depressive symptoms. Um, so there's, there's going to be a, definitely an overuse part to this. But in those mothers who can't self-care, who uh, have severe depression, they can't look after the baby themselves, they're at high risk of harm through either neglect or um, through intent to their, themselves or their babies. You know, so often these mothers are, uh, are locked up in a facility. This intervention is miraculous. I mean, the first study that came out in 2017, four mothers, two of them were on antidepressants, these four mothers were essentially locked up, couldn't self-care. They, they started the infusion, and all four mothers within 12 hours were laughing, preparing food. This, this neuroinflammation was switched off. Wow, that's amazing. And so this yeah. is derived from, I know it's a synthesized version, but from um, a hormone within the placenta. So that makes me think about placental encapsulation because I have friends that have done it and I'm really open. I didn't do it myself, um, but I've heard amazing stories about the women who have done it. Do you think there's a link there? Do you think? I, I would like to say yes, but this particular hormone, allopregnolone, can't get through the, the gut lining. Right. So you, yep. you can't have it as a tablet. But mm. um, I've heard lots of profound stories around placental encapsulation myself. There are some interesting studies around how it helps with iron and some of the micronutrients. Mm. Nothing else. It's a very potent multi-mineral multivitamin. Yeah. But there are going to be other hormones in there as well. And no one yes. really looks at the other hormones. And so there may be some other hormonal effects. And so allopregnenolone, interestingly, is made by the placenta to tune the mother's brain. It's a neurosteroid. So neurosteroid mm. is usually a hormone made by the brain for the brain, but the placenta is making this hormone for the mother's brain to tune her. Wow. Um, yeah, very profound. And again, you know, this research is just starting to re really kind of blossom. And, and one of the things I've just you know, I've only realised earlier this year is how the placenta tunes the mother. The placenta mm -hmm. is obviously the baby. It's not the mother. Genetically, it belongs to the baby. Um, it's serving two masters, and the first thing that the placenta does is it goes into in, biochemically goes inside the mother's brain and switches off her stress response system. Hey there, I'm Julia. I'm interrupting this podcast to let you know that if you are really enjoying this podcast, you'll probably really enjoy newborn mothers too. We provide online courses for professionals and mothers worldwide who believe birth is about making mums too. You'll find all the links in the show notes. Enjoy the rest of the show. I mean, it's, it's something yes. that's 50% foreign. Yeah. And so it you know, puts a pause on the mother's stress response system and then it produces this whole cat, you know, um, variety of hormones. Some, 
researchers describe it as a hormonal tsunami. Um, and all these brain changes then occur within the mother's brain. The EQ, emotional quotient, goes up significantly. The IQ actually goes up during the pregnancy, though most mothers swear to me that it didn't happen for them. Um, <laughs> but when, but when, they put, when they put mothers into a dark room where they're not having to you know, look after three children and um, sleep deprived, you know, they actually do better on an IQ test than they did as a man. Um, you know, their social reasoning, facial recognition, taste, smell, all these parts of the brain get a massive upgrade. And that all happens because of the placenta. Um, the other thing that the placenta does is it puts millions of oxytocin receptors between the amygdala, so the emotional response center of the brain. Mm, and when we have our fight and flight responses yeah, yeah. as well, and yeah. Yep. So the amygdala for me, yeah, it's 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 if any of your listeners have seen the movie Inside Out by Pixar, where you know you've got the five emotions that are you know looking over the landscape, um, that's the amygdala. It's kind of just emotionally sensing what's going on in the world, and then that sends information to the hypothalamus, the hormone response center of the brain, about what's going on. And so these oxytocin receptors essentially upgrade a mother's stress response system to me. Does it make sense for me? Am I safe? Am I okay? To we. Are we okay? Does it make sense for us? Are we okay? And, and, and it's because we know oxytocin is not only the hormone of childbirth, but it's also the hormone of connection. It's a hormone of trust. And this is explains very eloquently why so many mothers can't watch the news anymore, why they feel different going into their workplaces, why social relationships that they were having suddenly are starting to affect them and they didn't realise that they were kind of just tolerating these friendships or these in-laws and, and, and now they're finding it really hard to sort of do that because of this, or in part this oxytocin sort of upgrade. And then when the baby delivered, the placenta is also delivered. And what that means is the mother loses this hormonal factory, this pause on her hormonal stress response system gets relaxed, and this mother's in a very low hormonal state and trying to then reignite her hormonal stress response system that has suddenly come from me to we. And so this is coming back to this idea around postpartum practices. Now, one of the things that they have in common is typically four to six weeks of deep rest where the mother do very, very little. And if you're wanting the hormonal system to come back online, this is what you need to do. No stress, very little physical activity, no, no and you're just bonding with the baby and the, and, and the baby's giving you oxytocin and prolactin and, and you're kind of in this, um, and then you're giving those things you know, back to the baby. And if that happens, then your hormonal response system can come back in a, str a strong way and you're good to go, essentially. Yeah, you've been... Right. And all the other postpartum practices, are when you break them down... They've got multi-functions, but they all enhance oxytocin. So the warmth and the good foods and massages, 
really common. I even found an old medical text. You might have seen it. It was, I forget exactly what it's called, but it's like the handbook of ladies' medicine or something like that, a big old one, early yeah. 1900. It's got a section on, it's got some pretty funny stuff in there, but it's got a section on postnatal health. And it talks about all of these things from an English, European medical context, a woman should rest. She should have massage most days. And I was like, oh, wow. Amongst this very um, patriarchal medical paradigm, they had a really strong understanding in the early 1900s of postpartum care. Even some restorative yoga practices in there, which obviously weren't called yoga. But, um, and then the nutrition and all of that sort of thing as well were all primed for oxytocin. Well, exactly, and a lot, a lot of that early medical stuff before obstetrics became you know, over-medicalised uh, had to borrow stuff from the wise, midwives, because they knew that stuff worked. And you know, one of the things that's quite cute for me is uh, when you have, uh, doing antenatal care for a patient, sometimes you'll still see the abbreviation EDC. Yeah, confinement. It, it, estimated date of confinement. And yeah. Um, and it's like, wow, it's even, you know, most places just have estimated date of delivery now, EDD, but you still see that occasionally. And it's like the confinement, it wasn't a prison sentence, it was actually a, you know, alluding to this, what you've said about this time of deep rest. Um, uh, you know, so it's still, it's still in the system to some degree, even though it's not acknowledged anymore and mm. not practiced anymore. And mothers are almost pushed out to get on with your life, go back to work, you know, pretend you're not a mother, you know, whatever that kind of cultural dialogue is. And, and, um, and unfortunately, a lot of mothers really crash and burn with that because they're thinking, oh, my God, I've got to get back to work. I've got to get back to my maiden body. I go to boot camp or whatever you know, ideas that have been sort of sold in terms of postnatal well-being. Um, and a lot of the time it doesn't go well. No, a lot of the time it really doesn't. You're just not yeah. ready for it and haven't had that deep rest. With my, with one of my children, so after I lost my first one and then my next one, um, I lived with my parents-in-law. And so while I didn't, ex- she's Filipina, and so I got some traditional food and I didn't get all of the traditional care, but I really got to rest. <laughs> I didn't have to cook and clean much. And so it was quite profound, the difference to then my next uh-huh. child. And so you do talk in your book about that holistic picture of like the emotional, the social, the physical, um, nutrition and hormones. And you talk a bit about this sort of how um, in the modern, the modern mama comes in almost primed. And this is the modern context, I guess, is that we're already living in a fairly overstimulated, stressful world. So our stress hormones and our sex hormones and all of our hormones are already functioning in a completely different way to they would have been back when women were just housewives and maybe they just worked around the house and there was a slow pace. We didn't have news, we didn't have Facebook, we didn't have the whole gamut. So do you think that's a pretty huge contributor that women are already coming in with this balance? Well, very much. I think it's probably the primary thing that's driving uh, the depletion is that mothers are already coming into pregnancy, pre, I call it pre-dependent. And we live and there's no elbow room for anything more and we're already living on the edge a lot of us a lot of us have been you know late nights and parties and working hard during our 20s and we so you know we've kind of given our uh, adrenal system a bit of a thrashing already and um 
and we're older as well. So you know, it's the average age for a mother in Australia having a first child is 30.9. And so you know, older mothers who are already pre-depleted. Uh, and the other thing that I'm finding super fascinating is that so many, I'm getting more and more mothers who are coming either preconception or during a pregnancy to avoid depletion and or have already, you know, uh, we've managed to fix their depletion and they're coming in for the you know, subsequent pregnancy that to, you know, in, in terms of more preemptive support. Um, so many mothers don't really know how to relax. And it almost seems a ridiculous thing to say. But we need to teach, and we didn't learn it at kindergarten, we didn't learn it at school, we didn't learn it at high school, how to relax. Um, and at three o'clock in the morning when your baby's screaming its head off and you haven't slept in weeks, that, that's a challenging time to start learning how to relax. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, especially with the cocktail of hormones and the kids yeah, yeah, yeah. responsive and hypervigilant. And, yeah, absolutely. And, and, so, so the ancient, and so the ancient woman that we we're kind of talking about would have had less, well, no, they would have had a lot of stress, no doubt about that. When mm. you kind of look at some of the, the ancient bones that they've found and, and how much physical work that they had to do, you know, they, you know, they had, they, you know, we, we can't be uh, naive and think they had, mm. had a perfect life. No, they had a very stressful life, but they would have had a lot of relaxation with their stress. Yes, yeah. Stress on, stress off. You know, this is what I'm talking about all the time. The modern woman, stress on, stress on, stress on. There, there is no stress off. Then you come to pregnancy and you're pre-depleted and you stress on, stress on, stress on. You, know, you, want to have the, you want to have the perfect birth. You're getting everything kind of ready, getting the baby's room painted. You've got to have everything kind of right. Stress on, stress on, stress on, stress on. Um, that's the perfect recipe for you know, a postnatal car crash. Um, because suddenly you're in this low hormonal state, you've been upgraded, you feel very differently about the world and you don't know where to turn. Mm. And so you're seeing that manifest in lots of ways. I'm actually, in your book, you talk about the inflammation, but also lots of thyroid issues, so Hashimoto's and other thyroid issues. And I see that too. I see that in my friends um, yeah. and with other women that I've worked with. So can we talk a little bit about that, the common manifestations of what that looks like and how that's being diagnosed with Hashimoto's and things like that? Yeah, yeah. well, you think medicine would know this really well, and I'm amazed that it isn't more studied. Um, now, there are a number of researchers who have this idea that autoimmune disease can either be made worse or started because of pregnancy and a birth. Um, so you may have autoimmune disease kind of brewing or you may have had something in the past and it gets really kicked off by the pregnancy or it may actually be initiated by the pregnancy. Um, but when someone has an autoimmune disease and they go see the rheumatologist or the immunologist, most of the time, the specialist isn't asking, have you just had a child or are, are you a mother? And I think being a mother is so common that it's just been like, well, it doesn't actually matter. And so I'd love to see research showing you, yes, you know, having a pregnancy increases your risk of autoimmune disease, but the research hasn't really been done. You know, the only 
comprehensive study that I've been out of really find is the Danish postpartum thyroiditis study, where they followed up nearly half a million Danish um, mothers over you know, um, decades. And the what's coming back from that is quite compelling, but the entry point isn't even no, isn't that straightforward either in that sort of study. But we know that the peak incidence of autoimmune disease and thyroid problems starts a year after the birth of a child. And so you've missed the six-month period for it to be called postpartum or postnatal in most medical models. Mm-hmm. So what is it? No, it's, um, and, and so this is one of the things that even if we wanted to call that postpartum thyroiditis, we can't because it's outside the laneway of, of the definition. Yeah, such a and small the, window. And, yeah, and, and then the study shows that each year after that, there is an increased risk above baseline of having an autoimmune or other thyroid condition. Um, there are studies that show uh, mothers who have had thyroid problems when they've done a thyroid biopsy have a much higher rate of having foreign DNA, including male DNA in their thyroid, than non-mothers who have thyroid problems. Interesting. So, this is the idea of fetal microchimerism, of having foreign cells inside the mother's body, which is normal. Um, uh, and these cells can, no, so you, the cells from a pregnancy from the child can last in a mother's system for up to 20 years and possibly longer. They mm. usually live in the bone marrow. Um, and they think that a small amount of these may have a health benefit. But if there are too many from a stressful pregnancy and from a leaky placenta, um, and you know, these cells can start to really affect the thyroid. Mm. And I find amongst my mothers, there's probably a two-thirds of mothers with postpartum Hashimoto's have had a male in terms of you know, the pregnancy that really... So it's not always a male, but it's... it's, it's, it's way more than a 50-50 leaning towards it. But there's no research to really validate that because no one's looking, no one's... So... Wow, yeah, I can actually think of the few people I know and was after having a male baby. So that's very interesting. And it's more than just uh, the toss of a coin in terms of... It's definitely not 100%, but it's, I believe, significantly above 50%. Um, but There's a correlation there that needs to be explored a lot further. Yeah, and, but, but the thing that triggers it before that is a stressful pregnancy. And a stressful pregnancy doesn't have to be emotional stress. It can be biological stress. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and nutritional uh, as well, which you discuss a lot. So the leaky placenta, I find that fascinating. You talk a bit in your book about um, what, how a few human placenta differs from other placentas and because mm. fats need to get across and we yeah. have our human brains and we are the humans we are because of our um, ability to take in fats into our brain the way we do. But uh, do you think, do you have any theories around, I know we've got leaky gut and things like that, are our placentas leaking more or is this just a side effect of a natural function of what the placenta does, then you've added in a toxic load of the modern life? Yeah, so I think it's more the latter. And, and so the um, every membrane can be leaky, whether it be the gut or the brain, but it should be pretty minimal. 
and, and it shouldn't really cost a lot in terms of resources for the body to manage the leakiness because humans have had to go back to an older mammalian form of placental lining to enable so much fat to be able to go across the placental lining because we've got these big fatty brains. Um, uh, it's, it's more susceptible to leakiness. Now, right. researchers don't call it a leaky placenta. They call it increased permeability across the placental or syncytioplastic mm. membrane. Um, and there's quite a bit of research on that. Uh, and we know all of the um, problems of pregnancy usually have leaky placenta as part of what's going on. So whether it be preeclampsia, whether it be HELP syndrome, whether it be small for dates, whether it be pre premature labor, you know, this is definitely a, um, inflammat you know, an inflammatory condition with leaky placenta is, is part of what's kind of going on. So all of these you know, diseases of pregnancy have leaky placenta as part of it. And so I think what's happening is it's becoming more common, as you see all these conditions are becoming more common because of a lot of the things we've already alluded to in terms of older mother, you know, biological toxicity, social toxicity, stress, depletion, mm. um, hormonal sort of imbalance. You know, I'm, I'm sure uh, IVF and a lot of these things are, are going to be shown to be massively contributing to these things in the future, especially, especially postnatal issues, uh, because they by design kick up a inflammatory storm they kind of have to to override the signal that's that's causing some fertility mm, interesting um, i'm aware that you you need to probably get to work soon but just before you get back to clinic <laughs> you're gonna have yeah. a long busy day ahead of you thank you so much for making this time in the morning but um so we've talked about that holistic picture you know we need to and i think we do really need to be looking at prenatal like uh, preconception care which most traditional cultures did they had preconception foods and and yeah. they would start preparing um both women and men and that would be traditionally done before marriage and then <clears throat> during the marriage and that sort of thing but now so we obviously need to be trying to limit our emotional stress and build our village and social networks but you talk quite a bit in your book about nutrition and you've got you're also studying nutrition i believe is that right yeah no, no, <laughs> studying nutrition for many years um then now officially and, and so it's just it just um you know, I, i've done a lot of uh, study in nutritional environmental medicine so nutrition is what we eat and the environment is things like sleep mm -hmm. toxicity uh, mental well-being so, so not necessarily looking at this sort of disease state but nutrition obviously uh is, is a fundamental part of uh, human well-being. I'm, I'm still astounded that the medical world kind of ignores food as a therapeutic intervention. Mm. If you don't eat for a few days, you're in trouble, but what you eat doesn't matter. That seems to be um, what I was certainly taught in medical school and, and, and uh, the current thinking in medicine. And so a lot of what I'm trying to do, especially prenatally or um, uh, during a pregnancy or afterwards is just try to work out people's inflammogens, the foods that are causing them inflammation, uh, really try to assist with digestive health and um, also look not at what 
not, not only what they're eating, but when they're eating, why they're eating. Um, and, and so the when we're eating is just, you know, the timing of eating. So that can make a big difference to this idea of restricted eating hours. Um, you, know, you obviously wouldn't be doing that in early uh, breastfeeding or uh, late pregnancy, but just not, not eating for the, you know, the entire time we're awake, for example. Um, uh, this idea of fasting is a healthy stress, you know, eating in community, um, uh, not just eating uh, leftovers from your child's plate as you're rushing out the door. Um, and so, you know, food, food is, is fundamental. And, and a lot of it is, is essentially eating like your great-grandmother. I mean, that, that's what it really sort of comes down to. And a lot of us don't have that knowledge anymore. We don't have the time to kind of live in the kitchen. So it's how do we get that ancient wisdom in a kind of 21st century framework. And so this is my work, your work. You know, a lot of people are kind of mm. um, working in mother care is to sort of help do that because it's uh, uh, what most people don't realise is that our main interaction with the universe is not through our eyes, it's not through our nose, it's through our gut lining. And we sense whether the world is safe we sense whether we're going through a drought or a famine or there's you know through the gut lining and there's some really interesting research around toll-like receptors and um the like that really prove this to be the point and if you're eating food that's not nutrient dense that's you know rich in carbohydrates and low in fats your you know your primitive body is going to be going well the world's not really very abundant out there. We're going to just start changing a lot of our base biochemistry and wait for the world to become more abundant again and then we can um, become less thrifty, if you like. Yeah, um, our body can't discern between the fact that we just ate a bunch of white bread or white carbohydrates. That being yeah. nutrient deficient, the body will read that as being in a famine or something along those lines because yeah. the nutrient poor and then respond in that way. Yeah, I like that. Exactly. And so those nutrient poor foods are like, wow, there's nothing out there apart from you know, mm. way down the list of what we would normally be eating. Mm. Um, so and I love that you say eat like your grandma. So think back. Well, there wasn't. Go back a few generations. There was a lot of fresh vegetables. There was a lot of nose to tail eating of meat. There was a lot of just raw ingredients yeah and, and having to prepare foods and ferment foods and um you know, nothing came in a box and everyone had a garden up, up until the yeah. second world yeah. war everyone had a garden i mean and so people don't kind of realize that and there, there weren't places you could go to buy vegetables and, and and fruit was only seasonal and 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 since the second world war and the uh, essentially the change from ammunitions to to uh, pesticides it's kind of where all that energy went um, mm. in pesticides you know, the green revolution allowed monocultures and those kind of things and and so do so people didn't have to have a garden mm. uh, mm -hmm. whereas you, know, you wouldn't have met anyone pre second world war who didn't have a garden like of course you've got to grow your cabbages and your your sprouts and all those kind of things. And your greens and your herbs, yeah, and a citrus tree. A few fruit. My nan's 87. She lives in the western suburbs of Sydney. And, um, yeah, she's like, well, everyone just had chickens and eggs. Like, we didn't throw 
because I've been t- I've been doing permaculture stuff for many many years. But, um, she's like, we didn't put our food scraps in the bin because everyone had chickens, so it wasn't an issue. And then everyone had eggs, so everyone had fresh eggs, and everyone had a little garden. So it really wasn't that long ago that people had access to such fresh food and such cycling of our natural resources. And like you say, they were, it's not like they lived, there was stress on, stress off, and it was still a harder life and they worked a lot, but they were able to do all that amongst that sort of life of working hard in a different way too. So it is doable. Yeah, and then they, they also had rest kind of embedded in what they kind of do, that they would mm. just, um, rather than you know, this idea of not sleeping because you know, I can sleep when I'm dead, which is you know, a very common thing I hear in the medical world. Um, and uh, as opposed to going, no, sleep's actually the most fundamentally important thing that we do. <laughs> That's probably you know, even more important than the food quality of what we eat. Um, uh, and they would really honour and make space for, for time for social interaction, for um, and, and for having that stress off. Mm, yeah, it's true. Well, thank you. I feel like I hope for anyone listening out there, especially the mummers, that they can understand that this is not only just something they're experiencing or talking about with their friends at playgroup. This is actually something that um, has a medical understanding and a medical context as well. And there is support from that side of things. You, within your practice, you mentioned um, that you offer like individualised plans as well. And I think that's a really important aspect if someone's out there and they're looking to advocate for themselves to get a bit more extra support. You've heard this and you're like, okay, yep, I'm, definitely depleted. I highly recommend anyone read the book. There's so much good information in there, the postnatal depletion cure. Um, There's even some recipe ideas and food ideas of what good healthy fats are, micronutrients, macronutrients, the balance of good carbs and fats and proteins. Um, It's, you know, it's a great resource just to get started and get thinking about nutrition within the context of that holistic picture of health. Yeah, um, and, and we're all different, so yes. know, so it's, I'm just talking about principles, and then you know I really encourage mothers through intuition and through their own experiences to use those principles as a guide to work out what's best for them. Um, now I talk about you know, the postnatal fingerprint of what I typically see with depletion, but there's also individual issues that may be exaggerated. Um, or uh, you know, postnatally, so you have to see, have some understanding around that. So, yeah, and then I have many clients from around Australia and overseas who I do postnatal work with. And then, um, you know, I'm, I'm, like I said, very passionate about moving into this realm of helping teach other mother care workers around this what's vitally important sort of information. Yeah, wonderful. And so any quick takeaways if someone's thinking, all right, I need to look into this more, I might read the book, but I'm also keen to head to my GP. Do you recommend people try and find an integrative practice or find a GP they can work with and a naturopath at the same time? Any? Yeah, well, there are a few levels. I mean, we've just had direct-to-consumer testing introduced in Australia this year. So you can just go online and just order your blood test. You don't need a doctor anymore. Oh, oh. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, again, you, know, you don't get Medicare paying for the test either, so they're not uh, very cheap. But you know, that, that's one uh, you, 
I wouldn't expect any um, fatigued mother to kind of be able to work their way through this, but with that information going to someone, either a naturopath or a, yes. a, a GP who's at least uh, open and friendly with integrative sort of ideas. Who can help so, you interpret and interpret form a plan and, from those tests. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then if you can support micronutrients and macronutrients, especially uh, DHA fish fat, you can then start really looking at gut health, brain health, hormones, and then you can start really looking at sleep, purpose, activity, nutrition, and then from there you can start really start looking at a healthy home, healthy family, healthy community. And so it's kind of, for me, it's a spiral that kind of works outwards. I have so many mothers who want to have a, you know, worried about the health of their child, for example, um, they're coming to the clinic and I'm like, okay, we're going to start with you first, mum. <laughs> yes. And then we can kind of work on to the family. So yeah exactly i love that you've got purpose in there because i found purpose was such a huge one that i felt i'd lost uh, my expression of but also was completely renewed and re-energized with my purpose in a new way even though i've carried through my older purpose um, and i think a lot of women have that and to really embrace that that well of course you're getting rewired in this um, upgrade like you said so with that's going to come this new purpose out in the world so it's really important to really look after yourself, get boosted so that then you can deliver that and that will ripple out into the communities and can be of service with your purpose. I love that you have that in there. Oh, but it is, for me, it's, it's almost like the most essential part. That, you know, for me, the solution is not more doctors learning about this kind of stuff. It's older mothers supporting younger mothers. Mm. Um, and so older mothers have their purpose um, uh, tapped into, you know, they're going to be much clearer and more able to sort of support the younger mother. Mm. Um, and, and we have such a two-dimensional idea of purpose. You know, and certainly me growing up, it was like ideas around Greenpeace and saving the planet. That was, that's what purpose was around. It wasn't necessarily you know, being kind to your neighbour and um, being creative with your kids. You know, that wasn't, I thought, you know, what, what's that? It's not even <laughs> in, in, in that equation. Whereas I think purpose is much more around that than it is around these kind of big goals that we kind of get blinded by. Um, mm. being, being creative with your kids, you know, that for me is an incredible purpose and uh, thing to engage in. Uh, and trying to save the whales is, yes, obviously very important and something we should do as a collective, but... <laughs> yes. The parenting work is just as important because they're the yeah. generation that are going to inherit what we're trying to save. So we really need to come in and, and spend yeah. that time with them. Well, I know you've got to go, but it was actually one more, if you can make, sorry. Yeah. I would love to hear from you as a father and I really want to reach more dads and I've, yeah. so I've really been focusing on mum and obviously we need to be building the village. But I'd love to hear from you as a dad just briefly what that was like for you to experience seeing your wife and the mother of your children um, go through that transition and depletion and any ideas about how dads can be supportive because dads also go through patrescence, I guess, the transition yeah. into fatherhood. Yeah. So how they can balance that transition with also being part of the support network. Yeah, that's such an important question. I see so many dads just left in the cold going, I don't know what's going on. Um, no, I've heard jokes like, you know, my, my wife's got a new lover now and it's the baby. <laughs> and, 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 and three's a crowd. And so it's kind of this, rather than um, 
kind of understanding that their role has changed. Um, you know, that they're, they're a key part of uh, family wellness, and it's not about just being keeping busy at work and those kind of things. And so, I think it's even harder for men to make the upgrade into patriarchy because they don't have you know, the massive biological upgrades. Now, there are some changes in hormones that we've discovered with, with fathers, um, and so. You know, it, it first for me just starts with an, an acknowledgement of what kind of what's going on and the fact that things are going to be very different for the for the mother and so then things are going to be very different for the family. But just at least acknowledging that and going, okay, where do I get my resources from? Because for me, the most tragic thing is an under-resourced man who doesn't know, you know where to turn to um, and then defaults to a older kind of software to go, well, look, maybe I just go out with my mates. I'm just getting in the way here. Um, uh, I'm just going to spend more time at work, maybe earning money. More money is kind of what it's it's about. And so uh, and, and so I'm, I'm very passionate about trying to help upskill men. You know, there is a section in my book around this, but I think this is part of the collective discussion as well um, and you know, I'm seeing more and more psychologists for example who are really great at this sort of stuff I think men need to start talking more to each other just going look you know I'm kind of struggling with this are you struggling with this um, how can we kind of change the conversation or what have you heard and I think some of those conversations um, uh, is going to be where the magic's at because now, men are open but not necessarily willing to make the change. And so they need to be either mentored or see other men sort of doing it. It's going to make it a lot easier for them if they go, oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, my, my mate took six weeks off for his child. So it's going to make it very easy for them to make the, the transition to, to ask work to have a chunk of time off. If they've never seen a man do that before, they're going to have very little confidence to approach their boss to go, or, or if they are the boss, to, to kind of go to their team, look, you know, I'm taking four weeks off, I'm taking six weeks off, I'm really not going to be very contactable during that time because I'm going into that baby bubble. I mean, most men would have no idea that that's even a thing, let alone um, understand how profoundly important and how enriching it would be for them. Mm. So, you know, that, that's a very... Big question, what you've asked, and I think that's, and again, this is not going to just change overnight. It's going to be a, a generational change. You know, my job, your job, is to make sure that for our kids, it's a much e easier uh, progression into parenthood in terms of you know, helps turning up men a better resourced uh, going into fatherhood, and we're just not leaving it up to this random chance of. No one goes to parent school. No, there's no driver's license equivalent test of becoming a parent. Most adults have never seriously looked after any child for a length of time until it comes to their sort of first. I mean, I mean, all that stuff is just like nuts. You know, most couples spend more time researching buying a new car than they do researching becoming parents. You know, this is kind of what the research is sort of showing. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. and yeah, I feel about the birth plan over the postnatal plan because I also say to people the real work's going to start when bub gets here yes be prepared aim for it with your birth plan go in surrender to be empowered but surrender but the real work's going to start when you come home or when bub gets here yeah and, and it can be such a you know, bizarre alienating experience when parents arrive home with their baby and they're just like what what now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's also like, um, isn't there meant to be some sort of divine download that, about <laughs> about what's going on here? And um, and like you say, that's when the real work uh, kind of starts. And so, yeah, the bumpy road, just like adolescence, the bumpy road into matrescence and patrescence comes with all those those ups and downs and the learning curve. So I love what you said with the. Fathers, and I should say also partners, that's very heteronormative. So, patrescence could be for partners and paternal, um, yeah. is to, to the expectations really to like have those conversations about expectations of things changing. They're not going to always, they're going to keep changing as well over the years. And then also to have the conversations and build their own community amongst other partners and fathers as well. That's a huge one. Get that. And for healthy conversations, kind of check in. Is this just one of those bloke conversations? They're all right to a degree, but is this a healthy conversation that I'm having here around reframing this to the positive yeah. and understanding what's um, going on? Yeah, and this idea around mature love, you know, how intimacy changes profoundly, postnatally, mm. um, and, 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 and to be in it together. I mean, I think that's yeah. kind of part of it uh, as well. And, and um, many men, myself included, had no idea... I was what they call a, a copy and paste parent. You know, what was it? Like, sorry, a copy and paste. Yeah. <laughs> I, I quite like this idea. Yeah. No, we're not going to do that. You know, we're not going to do uh, dummies till later on, and we're going to co-sleep, and we're going to. But yeah, we're not going to do this, but we will do this. And it was just kind of like this quilt work of ideas, and of course, <laughs> none of it was relevant. They all go the out the window. <laughs> yeah. Know, when, you know, when the rubber hits the road, as they kind of say, it's like. It's kind of crazy in some way just to go, that's a very common experience in parenthood. Yes, yeah. I call it the great divide or the greatest synergy. So often it goes from, especially today with a modern woman, you're out there, you're working often and you've got your own world and independence and then all of a sudden you're surrendered. But there's a moment when your partner goes back to work and has the adult conversations and the lunch breaks and you don't. <laughs> and that feels yeah. like the greatest divide. But then if you can... I love that you say to work together, to keep, find whatever that is to keep building that bridge with that new relationship to create that synergy because it will, that divide feeling usually does happen to some degree. What's going to be your bridge? What are those aspects that keep bringing you back together to do it in partnership? Yeah, this idea of mature love, it's, uh, it's really important. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> have I have I made you be one of those doctors that's fifteen minutes late for your first? <laughs> uh, no, it's it's all good. It's all good. Um, <laughs> so quickly, people can find you at uh, a few places. So just oscarserelac.com. Um, I said them S E R A L A C H. I'll pop all these. Uh, Mother Care Project uh, is also um, something that will be gaining momentum next year. The uh, you know, social media, Instagram following, I've got a Facebook following. I'm really sort of trying to uh, dive deeper into things like Facebook Live and 
um, and just sharing information. And uh, I'll be starting a Patreon account next year, so that's where people can actually get um, um, get their hands on notes. And I, and I, I literally have so much information; it's ridiculous. And I, I'm just um, <laughs> I'm just busting to kind of share it and uh, get it out there for people to consume. So. Wonderful. I'll pop all those links up there and people can sign up to the Mother Care Project as well for when that really starts kicking in next year and bloody yeah. information starts getting put in there. Thank you. Have a beautiful day. I hope it's not too smoky up there. And, yeah, I really appreciate yeah. your time. Great. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening today. I really hope there was something there for you. Please feel free to head on over to Instagram and Facebook pages, Pollination Mamas, and leave your thoughts, ideas, inspirations, feedback. I'd also really love for this to partly be a collaborative experience for all of you out there listening and to hear what topics, ideas for guest speakers that you might have. And also, if you feel to, I would really appreciate if you head on over to iTunes, Anchor FM and the other platforms and left a review for the Pollination Mamas podcast. This helps for the podcast to be seen more and to get the word out there of these topics that we're all discussing to a larger audience. I found podcasts so helpful to feel a bit more connected to ideas that I didn't realize were um, so common amongst us all so yeah also feel free to share with anyone out there that you feel may gain something from this i also have a sign up on my website pollinationmamas.com where i send out approximately a monthly mail out with latest podcasts sales on my small batch largely homegrown herbal products latest workshops and other thoughts and ideas that i might pop up on the blog occasionally So thanks again for tuning in and hope to have you listening again soon.